Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Maybe you're here today and singing that song, It Is Well With My Soul, might be a little difficult to sing, and and that's okay, you're in the right place. Because today we're talking about this problem of suffering. Why do bad things happen? Why does God permit things like evil to exist? Why does this affect us? We're doing this sermon series called The Problem of God, and we said we're going to tackle these hard, difficult questions, and, and I'm glad that you're here with us on this journey this, this series is based on a book uh, written by a pastor named Mark Clark called The Problem of God, Answering a Skeptic's Challenges to Christianity. And the problem of evil and suffering is one of the largest challenges um, that will often come up. And I'm sure we've all had conversations like this or we've thought about it ourselves. And so I'm glad you're here with us to explore this today. Because we've been taking this whole series and we've been starting with this one kind of key concept. And we're saying it's better to base our beliefs on what is true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. And that's what we're driving to today. We want to drive to truth. What is true about this whole topic? What's true about this whole conversation? And we want to invite you to be part of that with us. Now, when we talk about a topic as deep as suffering, there's something that I want us to remember. We've, in this series, the first two weeks, we talked about God's existence, we talked about science, and and let's be honest, they were more of a philosophical message. We were kind of up here in our headspace most of the time. And today, we're going to start there, but we're not going to end there, because the thing is, suffering isn't just philosophical, it's personal. We're going to start with our heads, but we're going to move to our hearts today, and we're going to focus on this piece of it, because it doesn't matter what happened. We all experience pain and loss, even though our pains and our losses will all be different, and, and no two of us will have the same story in this, but maybe, maybe it's grief. Maybe we lost someone we cared deeply about, someone we loved. Maybe it was sickness. Maybe it was cancer. Maybe it was a diagnosis of some type that came as a shock and we're left reeling. Or maybe it was something like a failed endeavor, like you had a business and it was going well and then something happened or maybe some bad decisions happened and it all collapsed out from under you and you're left holding the pieces of what you were building and wondering, how did we get here? Or maybe sometimes the pain we feel is heartbreak You said you'd love each other forever. You said you'd be together. You know, he said this, she said this. And then something happened and it started to fall apart and maybe the lines of communications got cold and frosty and you're left with this sense of, I gave you my heart and now it feels like it's missing. What's happening? What's going on? Maybe for some of us, it's, it's we grew up in homes where a parent walked out or, or a parent died when we were at a young age and you grew up without that connection. And many of us carry father wounds and we struggle to realize that that song we sang before about God being a good father and we struggle with that term father for God because our own earthly father, we, we can't separate those images and we feel like I can't relate to God as a father because all the examples of father in my life have been so broken. How do we get around that? You know, and we haven't even talked about the pain and suffering that's caused by evil. Things like racism, things like sexual abuse, things like genocide, things that should never happen, but they do. And again, we're left in this position of how do we handle this? How do we wrestle with this? And so that's what we're going to do today. But as I said, we're going to start with the philosophical, but the truth is the philosophical approach is not very comforting. And so that's not where we're going to end today. We're going to move from a philosophical to a personal approach. 
And there's this kind of common question under all of this. How can a good God allow bad things to happen? That's our starting point. And many of you have probably heard an argument. This is a famous argument that was proposed by an 18th century Scottish philosopher named David Hume. And and the argument really goes back a lot further than him. We can go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, and they posed this same question. But David Hume kind of summarizes it really well. And he's an atheist, and he's trying to disprove God with this argument. And this is what he says, and we're going to unpack it a little bit and realize what he's actually saying And David Hume wrote this in the 18th century. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he's impotent. Is he able to prevent evil but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent. He's malicious. Is he both able and willing? Then why then is there evil? And he posed this question and felt like he had solved the thing. God doesn't exist. And, but the thing is, there's some problems in this, and, and we're going to go to a later philosopher, uh, a 20th century guy named J.L. Mackey, who's going to help us understand, and he wrote this trying to unpack David Hume's argument, and Mackey writes this, he says, a good thing, i.e. God, always eliminates evil as far as it can, and there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. And so he's explaining, both Mackey and Hume are saying, this is the God that Hume is talking about. A God that always eliminates evil as far as he can. There's no limits. Now, the thing is, there's some truth in this. There's enough truth that that it resonates. But if we actually examine it, we'll start to see that something in both what Hume and Mackey says starts to fall apart. See, what Hume and Mackey have both done is they've created a straw man argument. And we said right from the beginning, we're not dealing with straw man arguments here. We're dealing with strong arguments. But what Hume and Mackey have done is they've created their own version of God that is not the God of Scripture, and then they've disproved that God and said, hey, look, we disproved the God of Scripture. But they didn't. And here's why. There's three problems with this where they say that God must always eliminate evil. And there's three pieces, and again, these are kind of philosophical, heady arguments, but we're going to talk about them. See, the problem for Hume and Mackey's version of God that they've created is what about free will? See, their version of God, who always eliminates evil as much as possible and and to every extent, means that God, therefore, has to take away our free will. God has to take away our ability to choose and turn us into simply machines that follow whatever instructions for the front of the day get downloaded to our brains from God. You know, and and it's kind of like this, you know, kind of... Okay, a lot of you have kind of teased me a little bit about, I have this, this project in my garage. I have this car that I'm restoring. And some of you have teased me about, well, you know, you can love a car, but it can't love you back. You know, that's true. I know it. You don't have to remind me of it. But a, a machine can't love us back. And what God is at his deepest core is love. And he wants to be in a loving relationship with us. But that love is only genuine if it's real and if it's chosen freely. Now, Nikki and I have this little thing that, that we say to each other when, when one of us, uh, usually me, mildly annoys Nikki. And you guys, you kind of know when you get that eye roll, that kind of look of like you've done something that's not really upsetting, but kind of annoying. And Nikki and I have this phrase we say back at each, at each other. We say, oh, but you have to love me. We signed a piece of paper. You know, we signed that marriage license when we got married. And it's kind of this like trite little thing we do. But what we're doing is we're saying, well, you, you agreed to this. You have to love me. You don't have a choice about it, is really what we're kind of saying. It's not really real. We do love each other deeply. 
but not just because we signed a piece of paper. See, the problem with human Mackey's God is human Mackey's God that they've disproved is a God that did not grant free will, a God that did not create us in his image, a God that did not give us volition, that did not give us the ability to choose. They're actually disproving a God that's a computer programmer that wrote a script that we follow, that we have no idea that we have any other option. That's not real. So the second problem after free will is this one. What level of suffering must a good God prevent? What, what's the threshold of when an event is, is tragic or painful enough that God has to intervene and stop it? How many of you parents have stepped on your kid's Lego? Okay, it feels like a bear trap. They're sharp, they're hard, they're pointy. Like, is God supposed to stop me? Is supposed to like move that piece of Lego out of the way from under my foot? Like, what's the level of threshold? You know, we're, we have, I like our, one of the things I like about our church, we have nice comfy chairs. You know, if we had hard pews, and you sit on a hard pew for a little while, a hard wooden bench, and you know your butt gets a little sore. That's discomfort. Oh, that's pain. Is God supposed to prevent us from sitting on a hard surface for too long? Maybe we're thinking, yes, sermons should be shorter. You're not supposed to laugh at that one. Come on. But this is the question. What level of suffering must God prevent? Now, here's the third one. What if eliminating an evil thing also eliminates a greater good? This is where their argument starts to crumble even more. Because sometimes there are awful, tragic, horrible things that happen. And one of the things we're going to talk about a lot today is how God redeems our suffering. See, if a tragic event happens, but what it sets into motion is something that's a greater good for humanity. What if some sort of event that God had to prevent because it would have been temporary suffering caused some very important world leader to not be born? Or a scientist that was going to make a breakthrough in treating disease doesn't takes a different major and becomes a musician instead of a doctor. If God has this bigger picture where he's in control and he's dictating every single choice that every single human ever makes, well then what about this? What if preventing me from stepping on that Lego changes the course of my day? And because of that, you know, I you know, have to bandage my foot up because it's bleeding. You don't really bleed from Lego, but you get my point. What if it causes me to not meet that person that I was supposed to meet in a coffee shop? I'm late for a meeting. They say, ah, too bad. I'm not waiting on Brian. He's late. They go off. And we never get to have the conversation that needed to happen. We can run what ifs forever. But the thing is, if we think that God should intervene and prevent every single iota of suffering what we've actually done is turned ourselves into God. And we've said, God, you serve us. You're our butler. You're our protector. You have to serve my whims and desires. And we're taking the whole concept, the whole way that God created us to be in a loving relationship with him, and we're destroying it. See, Hume and Mackey's concept of God that they believe they have disproved is a false version. They've created their own version and said, well, this is who God is. This is the God of Scripture, and we've disproved him, but they haven't. And there's a second flaw, an even bigger one in this, and that's the fact that suffering is not just a Christian problem. It's a human problem. Suffering is something every one of us encounters, and Hume and Mackey are both writing uh, just about the Christian God, and they miss this whole bigger part that every worldview and religion needs to answer this problem of suffering. 
It's not just a question of Christianity. It's a question of humanity. And so what I want to do is we're going to actually run through and we're going to take a brief moment. We're going to look at some different worldviews and what they say about suffering. And then we're going to come to what scripture really says that's true about suffering. And so the first one we're going to look at is Buddhism. Buddhism says that you transcend your suffering through detachment. Now, if you were here last week and we talked a little bit about the Buddhist worldview and how it relates to science, Buddhism believes that we are all just devolved consciousness. And if we meditate enough, if we focus our minds enough, if we elevate our thinking enough, we can transcend the physical realm and reach this state of of being in complete detachment from our suffering. A Buddhist worldview says you just have to detach yourself from it. And furthermore, you need to kill your desire at the same time. You need to get rid of whatever desire you have. But the problem with killing your desire is you're saying, well, if you kill your desires, you're also killing your desires for love. You're killing your desires for friendship. You're killing your desire for compassion. And you just need to meditate more. See, Buddhism takes the sense that he says, well, you just need to get past it by detaching yourself from whatever it is that caused you pain. That's not a, a robust view. Second one we're going to look at is Hinduism. And, and Hinduism is very diverse, but, but a common thread and a common basis under Hinduism is this concept of karma. You know, be good and good will come to you. It's this kind of like, you know, if I'm a nice person, nice things will happen to me. If I'm a mean person, then mean things are going to happen to me. But karma is, is a very cruel way of looking at the world. In fact, in the book, The Problem of God, Mark Clark tells this story of when he went to India. And as they're traveling, he sees this woman with a young child who are sitting on the side of the road begging. And he's moved by compassion. He wants to help alleviate this woman's suffering. And so he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out some money and he goes to give it to her. And the tour guide stops him and says, don't do that. And he says, why? And the tour guide explains that this woman and this infant child are suffering because of something they did in a previous life. This is karma's judgment on them. This is justice that they are suffering. And if you give them that money and you alleviate their suffering even a tiny bit, karma will still have to balance it out. And so they're going to have to suffer more and for longer to pay their karmic debt. See, this is the problem with karma. A karmic worldview prolongs suffering and perpetuates injustice by denying compassion. Because if Mark had given that woman the money, even if it was a small token amount, well, that alleviated her suffering even for that day. So now karma says you have to suffer for longer to make a balance. And this is the catch-22 of karma, is you're supposed to be good to get good to come back to you, but you can't do good because doing good will cause someone else to suffer more. And so really, giving that person money under a karmic worldview is inflicting evil on them. And it falls apart. It's an approach that doesn't take. In fact, Jesus outright contradicted this worldview when he encountered this. There was a time in the Gospel of John where Jesus is with his disciples and they come across a man who is blind from birth. And in John 9, his disciples say this, Rabbi, which is the Jewish word for teacher, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? So here's this karmic worldview coming in, even in first century Judaism, of they think this man or his parents did something wrong, that's why he was born blind. And Jesus says this, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. So he's, he's 
dismissing this karmic worldview. He says, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. This is our hint about what Christianity does about suffering that's different from any other worldview or world religion. Jesus redeems suffering. We're going to come to more of that in a moment. Let's look at at, at two more. New Age philosophy, which is kind of this smorgasbord of a bit of Hinduism, a bit of Buddhism, and even a couple older things like Gnosticism that get in. But New Age philosophy has this whole sense of we're part of a common consciousness and we have to think positively and focus on what's good and good will come back. There's this karmic influence in New Age philosophy. But New Age philosophy actually denies the existence of evil and says that you're the cause of your own suffering because you aren't connected enough to the divine consciousness that's in everything. You didn't think positively enough. You didn't focus on what was good enough, and that's why you're suffering. A New Age philosophy actually denies this existence. In contrast, the Bible says that suffering is real, that suffering is tangible. It's something we face. And it's something that was so important to God that he came himself to deal with it. Let's look at just one last one, Islam. Islam, again, is quite diverse, but the common thread underneath different streams of Islam is that it is God's will for you to suffer, so you must submit to it. That everything, no matter what it happens, happened because God ordained it that way, and you just have to grin and bear and submit to it. And in fact, there's a, often in many streams of Islam, there's a bit of this Buddhist perspective, this Eastern philosophy that gets added in of saying, well, you just have to detach yourself from suffering. But, but God caused it. And some of us, you know, if we are honest with ourselves, we've reached those points when we've been in a dark place and we've said, you know, God caused this suffering to happen. And, and, and it's sometimes we think, well, that would make sense of it, but it doesn't make sense of it and doesn't find meaning the way that God wants to show it to us. So it's actually, sorry, I had one more I wanted to talk about, and that's the naturalism view. This is kind of that there's, if we believe there's an evolutionary and a biological answer for everything, there is no divine, we're just biological matter moving through life. Naturalism, which is often the perspective of atheism, says that your suffering is just survival of the fittest. If something happens to you, you know, maybe it was something malicious, well, too bad. You're just not the fittest. Your genetic material doesn't get to survive. And in fact, it gets even colder if you think about something that's just purely an accident. No maliciousness, just something went wrong. And we still say, oh, too bad, survival of the fittest. That's all that suffering is, is you're not the fittest. But even if we try and put the most possible positive spin on naturalism, the most, positive po- the most positive spin we can put on it is this. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, that matches with survival of the fittest. If you survive an ordeal, whatever it is, well, now you're stronger. Now you can endure more. Now you can carry on. And there's a, a little bit of truth in that, that we do learn and grow through trials and experiences that are difficult. But if this were really true, if what doesn't kill you always made you stronger... Well, every grief and trauma counselor would be out of work. PTSD wouldn't exist. Grief wouldn't exist. Because if you make it through whatever the ordeal is, you go, oh, I'm stronger now. That's the naturalistic point of view. Now I'm fitter. Now I'll survive more. Now my genetic material will carry on. And that's all we're biologically driven to. See, naturalism is, I think, the most, the least comforting view to me. 
Because all it says is put on your big boy pants and get over it. And if you ever try and give that as advice to someone who is in grief, now I'm not endorsing this, but chances are you're getting a black eye out of that in exchange, right? If you tell someone, well, just put on your big boy pants, get over it. That's not comforting at all. Where's nurture? Where's love? Where's the things that make us human? Now, I'm not saying that someone with a naturalistic or an atheist point of view can't be morally good. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is if we take this to how naturalism deals with suffering, all these ring hollow. So what does Christianity in the Bible actually say about suffering? What does the God of Scripture who created us and loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us say? And for that, we're going to look at a couple passages of Scripture. The first one, we're going to go into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at one of the prophets. Now, the prophets were people that were sent with a specific task to be essentially the voice of God to the community, to come and to speak on God's behalf and instruct the people about what God either is doing, will do, or to even sometimes just give clarity about what is happening in the world right now. And one of the premier, most important prophets of the Old Testament is a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah was active during one of the darkest times in Israel's history. See, after Saul, David, and Solomon were kings of Israel, the nation split in half. The northern half kept the name Israel. The southern half uh, became Judah. And a while after that split happened and the two kingdoms were separate, Isaiah is born. And God gives him this task of being his mouthpiece to the kings, of speaking to the kings on God's behalf to try and steer and direct them. And during Isaiah's reign, the kingdom of Assyria, which is a, a neighboring country, comes and invades Israel in the north and oppresses them, conquers the whole nation. The nation of Israel in the north is no more. They're done. And everyone living in the south in Judah, where Isaiah primarily was, are living with this fear in the back of their minds because Assyria was also attacking Judah at the same time and there were constant battles and skirmishes between the, the Judean men who would be called up to, to serve as an army versus these Assyrian soldiers. And the whole nation is living under this shadow of knowing we're going to be attacked. And in the middle of this, God gives a promise to Isaiah God gives this promise that we find in the latter chapters of Isaiah. And I want to read to you part of Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. And this is a promise of something that's happening, coming in the future. Isaiah says this, he says, Yet as our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away and have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. See, what Isaiah is talking about is this promise that God starts saying time and time again in the Old Testament that God is going to send a Messiah. God is going to send an anointed one to come and redeem and restore all of Israel, and redeem and restore the whole earth. That's what this passage talks about. When it talks about him taking on our sorrows, our pains, our punishments, our sins, this is the promise of God stepping into the world to change everything. And that promise we know now is is fulfilled by Jesus. 
And in fact, when Jesus came and he started his ministry, there was a lot of confusion around this. Are you the Messiah? Are you not? And even his own disciples couldn't always figure it out, even though they knew all these promises from Isaiah and the other prophets. And finally, after one of the times when when Peter actually gets it, he says, wow, you really are the son of God. Jesus responds to him and he tells him this. He says, the son of man, that's Jesus' own term for himself. He's speaking in the third person in the sentence. He says, the son of man must suffer many terrible things, Jesus said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. See, Jesus, when he makes this statement, and other ones like it all throughout Scripture, he is identifying himself with Isaiah 53, and the whole narrative and that chunk of Isaiah is actually called the suffering servant passage. Because that's what Jesus did. God himself, put on flesh, came into the world to take on the sins of the world to redeem and restore. See, this is what separates Christianity from every other worldview that we just talked about. Jesus embraces our suffering, takes our pain onto himself, and he overcomes it all. That is what we believe. That is what the God of Scripture says. And if we go back to Hume and Mackie and their whole thing, well, God's purpose is to eliminate evil. No, it's not. God's purpose said throughout Scripture is to be in a deep and loving relationship with us, to redeem our experiences, to restore us from whatever suffering, from whatever separates us from God and draw us closer to him. That's the God that Hume and Mackie don't understand and can't comprehend because the purpose of it is that Jesus gives meaning to our suffering by embracing us in it. In fact, there's multiple times that this gets talked about in Scripture, and I want to go to a passage from Romans, and it's, it's a passage that is often misquoted and misunderstood, and so I want to clear up a little bit of misinterpretation around this passage before we start, and it's this one, Romans 8:28. This is Paul's writing to the Roman church, and he says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And there's a stream of Christianity that's very active even today that takes this passage and says, if we're acting in accordance to God's purpose, then nothing bad can happen to you. In fact, everything good is going to happen to you. You're going to be wealthy beyond measure. You're going to be healthy. You're going to have fantastic things. You're going to have material possessions like crazy if you're walking in line with God. That's what this stream interprets this passage as. But the problem with that whole stream is it ignores everything that Paul has been saying from Romans 5 to the end of Romans 8. It ignores the whole context of the passage because what Paul's talking about in this stretch from Romans 5 to Romans 8 is about the fact that the way the world is now is not what God wants it to be. The way the world is now has been tainted by our rebellion, by our sins, by the things that we've done that... (laughs) that have caused pain and inflicted others, or the things that we've done that have hurt ourselves or the people we care and we love the most, the world isn't the way that God meant it to be. But in the midst of that, God can redeem anything. God can cause good to come out of any situation. And this is a difficult concept to wrap our heads around, especially when we're in the midst of feeling personal pain and suffering, when we're in a dark place, it's not very comforting to say, you know, God can pull some good out of this eventually. It's not, it doesn't always feel comforting, even though it's true. 
And let me give you an example of this. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were on one of their missionary journeys and they got arrested because they were talking about Jesus and people were upset about that. And so they got beaten, they got thrown in jail and in the middle of the night, they're in chains in a Roman jail and they're singing and praying. They're praising God. And in this moment, an earthquake hits sent by God and the jail doors fly open, their chains fall off their wrists and their ankles and they're freed. And the thing is, they don't actually rush for the exit. You'd think they would. I mean, we probably would have rushed for the exit. But no, instead what happens is the jailer comes and discovers that all the prisoners are still there, but the jailer is distraught. He's failed at his job. And the jailer is about to commit suicide because he feels that's the better option than reporting to his superiors about how all the doors flew open and the prisoners were set free. But Paul and Silas stop him and say, no, let me tell you about something. And Paul and Silas tell this jailer about Jesus, about who they know who is the savior of the world. And that night, Paul and Silas get taken to the jailer's home And the jailer and his whole family come to faith in Jesus and are baptized that night. God takes this situation of them being beaten, abused, arrested, and he redeems it and he uses it as an opportunity to show his love and his mercy and his grace. When Jesus redeems our suffering, he gives it meaning. And we can find meaning in whatever circumstance we're going through. In fact, there's a little book that I read a number of years ago. A friend of mine, we were actually walking through a bookstore and he saw this book and he pulled it off the shelf and he handed it to me and said, you're buying this and reading it. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll buy it and read it. It's a tiny little book. I knew nothing about it. And the book was called Man's Search for Meaning. It was written by Viktor E. Frankl. Now, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychologist, or psychiatrist, sorry, neuro- neurologist and psychiatrist who As the Nazi Germany party rose to power, he was Jewish and his family was rounded up by the SS and sent to a concentration camp. They started at Auschwitz. And what happened was he, because of his background as a a Jewish neurologist and psychiatrist, he started observing and looking about what was going on. Him and his wife got separated nearly immediately. And he spent his time looking at people as they came in. And he started asking this question, why are some who are arrested in this concentration camp, why are some able to endure and survive while others turn into hollow shells of humanity, you know, the moment they walk through those gates? And he's wrestling with this. And so the book, the first portion of it is, is his journey of being in the concentration camp. And in the latter portion, he finally says, so here's what I've learned. Here's what I learned from this experience of witnessing the worst human suffering that he'd ever seen with his own eyes and human suffering that we hope never, ever gets repeated. And this is what he realized. He says, those who have a why to live can bear with any how. He said, when people came in, if they found meaning in their suffering, if they chose to find a meaning in what they were experiencing, they were the ones who mentally remained fit and complete through their experience. In fact, he goes on a little later and he writes this about his experience. He says, for the first time in my life, I saw the truth as is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love, and he writes love with a capital L, that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret 
that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. That's what he comes down to. The meaning to be found in whatever we're facing is that the salvation of man is through love and in love. See, this is what makes Christianity unique in its response to the problem of suffering because God is love, God is motivated by love, and he reveals his love to us through his own suffering and his sacrifice. See, when Paul wrote that about God redeeming all things to be good, just 10 verses later, he writes this, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. This is how God meets us in the middle of wherever we are is with his love. Because he is love, he's motivated by love, he desires to reveal his love to us. When we find meaning, we have the opportunity to draw closer to God. But here's one of the the undisputable facts about suffering. When we're suffering, when we're facing pain, when we're facing whatever it is we're facing, either we choose to grow closer to God or we choose to move further away. And some of us can each probably look at an experience in our lives of a time when something tragic and awful happened. And you can probably realize and pinpoint that moment where you made a choice and said, you know, I'm going to lean towards God or I'm going to lean away. And what I want to do today is I want to give you an opportunity to make that choice again, to change your answer, if you will. Uh, I'm going to invite Alistair and the band to come up and they're going to, to lead us in a song. And this song isn't like the normal songs that we sing because there's this whole genre of songs throughout scripture that the church you know, sometimes hasn't known what to do with and we've kind of ignored them. And these are songs of lament. These are songs of sorrow. Songs when everything is falling apart and the world just seems dark and bleak and without love and without hope. And the psalmists write these songs of lament, of pouring out our tears, pouring out our pain, pouring out our suffering to God. And that's what I want to invite us into today, to have this moment of choice. And we're, we're going to do this through the act of communion, through communion and through prayer. And so as Alistair and the band lead us in this song, it's called Weep With Me. Um, I want to invite you, you can just sit, you can reflect. The words are going to be on the screen. You can sing along if you like. It's up to you to respond how you need to in this moment. But I want to invite you to something a little deeper at the same time. If you're in this place where you're saying, you know, I need prayer for whatever this is, I'm going to put three options in front of you. Myself and our elders and some of our leadership team, we're going to be at the front underneath the projection screens on either side. And if you want some prayer for something, just come up to one of us. We'll gladly pray for you. If you're feeling like, I don't know, that's a little, I don't want to walk to the front. Maybe someone you're sitting with, maybe a friend who brought you, maybe someone you've walked with in a bit of a relationship, you can say, hey, can you pray for me for this? And just in your seats where you are. Or if you're saying, you know what, I just, this, this is uncomfortable. I know I need prayer. I don't really know what I want to do. That connect card you got on your way in, there's a big spot on the front for you to write a prayer request on. And if you just drop that in one of the black boxes by the auditorium doors, our prayer team, which holds everything completely confidential, we're not going to distribute it beyond our, our trained prayer team who will pray for you on these things. Just write it on there and drop it in and we'll pray for you. And as you feel ready, as you feel like you want to take this choice to say, God, 
I'm feeling this pain. I'm feeling this suffering. I don't know what to do with it, but I want to give it to you. Come up as you feel ready and take the elements of communion. Pour yourself some of the grape juice. Take a piece of the bread. The bread on the silver tray is gluten-free. And take a moment and sit and reflect on the fact that God wants to meet us in our suffering and give it meaning and purpose by revealing his love. So let me pray for us before Alistair and the band lead us. God, we know you're here. We know that you love us. And sometimes we know these things in our minds, but we struggle to know them in our hearts. And so I pray this morning that you would soften our hearts to see your love. That we could choose to come closer in a relationship with you by taking our suffering and choosing to let you give it meaning as you embrace us in it and carry us forward. Would you meet us here? Amen. So as you feel ready, come for prayer, come for communion. Take this time for what you need it to be. It's my deepest hope and my prayer for our community of faith and our church and our city that we would be a place where people can encounter Jesus profoundly. And I believe that some of you have encountered Jesus profoundly here today. And I want to encourage you, press in, lean in on that. Whatever it is that you're facing, you don't have to face it alone. Whatever it is that you're wrestling and you're struggling with, let's be a church that is walks together through this and leans on our Savior, that leans on Jesus Christ to lead us through this. When we experience suffering and pain, will we let it draw us closer to God? Because even though it's not God's plan and not God's desire for us to experience pain and suffering in the ways that many of us have, it is God's plan and desire to draw us closer to Him through it. Will you trust that? Will you believe in that? Please, don't just walk away from this and dismiss it. If you're reached this point where you're saying, you know, yes, I'm going to choose to give my life to Christ, that maybe I've sat on the fence for too long, would you let one of us know? Talk to any of the people you saw up here, or even if you don't, you can just check it off on a card and drop it in. Let us know you're making that step so that we can walk with you on that journey. And again, if, you, if there's something you want prayer for, you can fill out our contact card um, here at a service. You can fill it out online. Let us know if there's a way that we need to walk together with you. Let's do that together. But it takes a first step to get there. Let me pray and then dismiss us. God, thank you that you saw fit when you looked at the world and you looked at everything that was wrong, you looked at everything that broke your heart and your response was to step in. Your response was to lean in to us, to come into the world, to teach us, to lead us and to make a new path open to you. And God, I pray that you would draw us deeper in that path. Would you lead us in closer to you every day? Amen. Folks, if you need some time to just sit and reflect, you're welcome to be here. If you want to visit, um, head out to the lobby. uh, And let's just let this still be a quiet space if it needs to be. Thanks for being here. Next week, we're talking about the problem of hypocrisy. We're talking about why does it seem that it's so easy to say one thing but act another. And we're going to wrestle through that one together. Thanks for being here. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.